Have y'all ever had an experience where you were at some sort of gathering or maybe just, um, you know, in the cafeteria at work or at school or whatever, and uh, you were sitting there by yourself? You were kind of new to the environment, new to the situation, or things had just fallen uh, in such a way that you were by yourself in, in that environment. And as you're sitting there, somebody comes over and invites you to come join them sit at our table, or ask if they can join you at your table, or something like that, and they included you. It's a pretty special moment, right? When you're, when you're kind of on the outside, or by yourself, and then suddenly you're included. You're part of it. Several years ago, um, when I was a teenager, um, I decided it was best for me to go to a different church than my parents were attending. Um, I just got my driver's license, had some freedom, so forth, and um, the church they were attending was really small. It ran about 20, 25, and I felt being called to the ministry that I needed to be in a church with a little bit more provision in terms of helping me grow in my ministry and so forth. So I went to the, the big Baptist church in town, and um, one Sunday I was there, and they had Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, next week we'll, we, we will be sharing the Lord's Supper together, so if you want to be a part of that, I'd love for you to, to be here for that time. Um, but they were having the Lord's Supper in a little bit different way than uh, maybe you're used to having it. What they did was they set up tables around the auditorium. And on each table were the elements, uh, the bread and uh, the cup. And uh, they invited you to go up in family groups. So... Uh, with your family, you know, um, go to the table, and as a family, take the Lord's Supper that way. So we were doing it corporately as a body, but also uh, as families at, at the tables. Well, I'm there by myself, but I wanted to participate in Lord's Supper, so I did. I, I went up to the table by myself, got the elements, started praying, those sort of things. About just a few moments in, um, this family came up, and they put their arms around me, the father did, and he said, he said, we don't want you to do this alone. And they led. He began to lead in the Lord's Supper and so forth. And I got to be part of their family for that moment. And it was just incredibly moving for me to have somebody see this teenage boy and care enough to get up and, and make me a part of that event, that service. And that's really who our Savior is too, right? He is one who takes outsiders and makes them insiders. He takes the people that are on the periphery, the people who are not really observed or recognized or part of the group, and makes them a part. How many times do we see that in the Gospels where he's having a meal with people that you really shouldn't have meals with, the unclean? the outcast. As we're moving through the prophecies of the Old Testament that pertain to the coming of the Messiah, that reveal to us something of his nature, of his character, of his essence, we come today to uh, Numbers chapter 24. You'll turn there with me. It's a passage that um, if you grew up in the church, you probably know at least something 
about the story that's involved here um, because it's one of those stories that just kind of stands out. It's a story of a prophet, a prophet named Balaam. Now, Balaam was not an Israelite, okay? Um, he was, uh, in fact, a, a Moabite. He lived among the Moabites and so forth. Um, and he was apparently a, a, um, a prophet of some repute. In fact, archaeologically, we found a, a temple in the region where he was that is dedicated to Balaam. The inscriptions and all that mention him and go on and on about his great uh, skills and abilities as a prophet. Um, so he was apparently a, a person of, of some renown, some importance, some significant, but he's not an Israelite. And as Israel's moving into the area, they're coming up okay, on the, on the east side of the Jordan. So they're coming up through Edom, Moab, Ammon, and they're going to move across the Jordan into the Promised Land. As they're coming up, the king of Moab says, there are too many of these guys. They are going to eat all our crops. They're going to destroy all our cities. They're going to ruin us. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire Balaam to go and curse Israel. Put a curse on them. He's real gifted at this. He's real talented at this. He's the man for the job, so I'm going to hire him. And so he sends his emissaries, and there's this exchange with Balaam. And initially, Balaam says, I'm really not interested. And interestingly, he uses God's divine name. He, he refers to God as Yahweh, which is extraordinary for a person kind of on the outside. Usually, other uh, entities around Israel, whenever they talk about God, they just use the generic God. But he actually uses the divine name Yahweh. He says, I, I don't want to go up against his people. Now, there's some amount of discussion, debate among scholars exactly what's going on there in, in chapter 22 because there's this long exchange, this long series of exchange, I should say, between Balaam and God. Where God says, don't go, and then God says, go. And, then, and it's a little bit confusing, a little bit convoluted, but where most scholars come down is that Balaam's heart was not really pure. He was driven by wealth. He was driven by material goods. And we get that primarily from Peter's commentary on him in the New Testament when he says he was given toward wealth, that sort of thing. And God's seemingly changing instructions there in chapter 22 are not really so much changing instructions as they are handing Balaam over to his own desires. I think it's probably the best way to understand it. But there are those times in our exchanges with God when God says what? Okay, your will be done. Okay, when we're not really willing to listen, when we're not willing to to obey him or, or, or be wholehearted in our desire to serve him. And so you have the, the famous story, Balaam gets on his donkey the next day and heads out. He's going with the men back to uh, this place, the donkey says the first time the donkey turns off into the field, just starts to turn and run off into the field. Balaam's all like, what are you doing? He starts beating the donkey. I can't believe you like this. Finally, he gets the donkey kind of straightened out, and this time the donkey runs him into a, a, a wall, a stone wall that's there, pins his leg in between it. Oh, Balaam's really mad now. 
can't believe you're doing this. Beats him a little bit more. Get going a little bit more, and this time the, the donkey just lays down underneath them. Okay, they're just riding the donkey like, okay, I'm laying down. And Balaam begins to beat him, and the donkey turns around and says to him, what are you doing? Have I not served you all these years? Okay. And, and, and Balaam begins this conversation with the donkey, first of all, which, again, Donkey starts talking to me. I'm I'm off that donkey. <laughs> you know, I'm done. You know, I, I'm 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 not carrying on a conversation with him. Certainly, but he begins this conversation. You know, and, and finally, it says the text says he God opened his eyes and he sees an angel standing before him with a sword. Okay, so the donkey saved his life. What was going on? Didn't want the, that angel to run him through. The angel says, "Go." But as you go, instead of curses, I want you to speak blessings to Israel. Okay. I want you to express these things. And what we see here is as Balaam goes, he, he, he pro proclaims four different oracles, four different sermons to Israel, all of them blessings. And the third one, he talks about one who's coming who what? Who crouches, he lies down like a lion. That's what we looked at last week, the Lion of Judah. Here's this outsider who is also acknowledging the Messiah who's coming as a lion. But it's in the fourth oracle that we want to spend our time this morning. It's verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. The one he proclaims, the king who's coming, is the victorious one. Now remember, Balaam himself has been hired by Moab to speak a word of cursing, and now he's doing what? He's speaking a word of blessing, and, and he's saying what? This one who's coming will smash the forehead of Moab. My own people. You have this, this moment here, this, this, this expression here where God has done what? He has turned a bad thing into a good thing. And that's the first truth I think we see about the Messiah here in this passage is he brings good out of evil. He's so powerful, he's so in his element that he can take an evil thing and turn it so good. We've already seen it back with Joseph. Remember, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. God used that what to rescue Israel, to save them. And Joseph says there at the end, "What you desired for evil, God determined to be good." But here you see it played out in the background, in terms of God taking this this prophet, this false prophet by all accounts, false in the sense that he serves a false god, 
false in the sense that he has no true recognition of who God is. He is, by all accounts, a pagan who practices pagan ideals and pagan ways of doing prophecy with divination and all those things that are strictly forbidden in, in God's law. And yet God's going to take that voice and he's going to use it for his purposes. Now this plays out, not just here, this plays out with the one that Balaam is foretelling as well. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 2, you see an event there. What do you see? You see these wise men or magi from the east come to Israel. They follow the star. They get to Jerusalem. Where is this king that's been born? Which is what? It's a sense of, it's an expression of prophecy, right? They are there saying, we know a king, someone significant, someone important, someone who will lead Israel has been born, and we are here to acknowledge that. The text says all of Jerusalem was abuzz. So they consult their scriptures, the prophetic text, and they say in the book of Micah, it says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now what you need to understand about the Magi, something that we often omit, something we often overlook, is that they, like Balaam, were pagans. They were not Jews. They were not Israelites. They had not grown up observing the Torah and its principles. They were outsiders. They were pagans. And how did they come to identify the birth of the king? Using pagan means. Just as Balaam here had used divination, the Magi used what? Astrology. Something strictly forbidden in the Old Testament law. And yet God used it to what? To make this great proclamation of the coming of the Messiah. But more than that, what do you have? You have these magi, you have these pagans. They come to the Messiah. They come to him in his house. It's a little boy at this point, probably a toddler, probably, probably about two years in. And they bow down before him. And they give him gifts. They acknowledge who he Whereas the rest of Israel is doing what? They're ignoring them. Herod wants him dead. Tell me where he's, where he's at so I can come and worship him. But they're warned by the angel. Now he wants to know where he's at so he can kill him. You see, this is the nature of this prophecy. It's the nature of who the Savior is. He takes the outsiders and he brings them in. And each and every one of us here today who is a believer were at one time outsiders, enemies of God, Scripture tells us. Now, you probably didn't picture yourself that way. Um, I know myself, I came to Christ at the age of eight. I certainly, at the age of eight, did not look at myself, I'm an enemy of God. I was a little boy. All I knew is I needed a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. 
so I responded to that invitation. But in fact, according to Scripture, according to truth, I was an enemy of, an enemy of God. I was in opposition to Him. I was in rebellion to Him. Anyone who lives a life, who walks a life outside of that relationship, that submission to Him, is an enemy of God. We are outsiders. And the text says what? Scripture says what? He takes us as outsiders, as enemies, and He makes us His sons and daughters. Wow. Think about that. I mean, it's, it's one thing. You know, you're dealing with somebody and they're opposed to you, they're, they're cursing you, they're cussing you, they're, they're mistreating you, they're disrespecting you in every corner. It's one thing to say, okay, I, I forgive you. I'll, I'll overlook that. It'd be quite another to take that same person and what? I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you my child. Who would expect that? And yet that's exactly what God did. He made us his son and his daughter. He brings good out of evil, out of wrong. There's power there. There's power there. A lot of times people want to focus in on, on God's sovereignty as an expression of his power. And yes, there is certainly power in sovereignty to be able to determine, decide, direct all things, which God in reality does. But somehow... In the mystery of it all, he is what he's allowed us free will. Now think of the, the, the power needed there to allow us to truly have free will and yet still remain sovereign and in control, guiding all things, guiding all life, guiding all reality. How do those two things work? Well, we don't always understand that, and so we tend to what? As people, we tend to gravitate to one direction or the other. Some of us will go, well, he's absolutely sovereign. Everything you do is determined by him. You have theologians out there who will even say, the sin you commit was determined by God. They'll go that far. Okay. And then you got people on the other side with their, their free will view, and, and they're what? Man, you know, um, they're going to limit God in some way. I have freedom of will. Some of them are going to go so far as to say what? God doesn't even know the future. And you have these people who are, who are going to these two extremes on both ends. Why? Because they, they want to understand things. And ultimately, we need to understand that we're not going to understand all the things about God. If we did, he wouldn't be God. And there are some things that he can do that we can't. Like be absolutely sovereign and still allow us freedom. How does that work? I don't know. I just believe that's what Scripture teaches. That's how powerful he is. That's a God worthy of worship. That's a God worthy of praise. That's a God that's bigger than I am. 
along with that, as I mentioned earlier, he makes outsiders into insiders. You have the Moabite Balaam here. He comes in. Four oracles, four sermons, as it were, that he is able to deliver to Israel. It's not just he pops in and says, hey, God's blessings on you, and he leaves. He hangs around. Now, we'll see he hangs around too long here in a moment. But at this point, at least, we have what? We have this reflection of this pagan false prophet who's speaking incredible truths and using terms like the Most High and the Almighty, and talking about this one who would, who would come and who would rule and how Israel will be triumphant. God has given him the benefit, the privilege, the blessing of being an insider. Because let's face it, what God could have done was simply said, Balaam, you're not going. You're dead. That's an easier solution, right? You don't want somebody to speak curses? I'm just going to put an end to you. But God, in his graciousness, gives Balaam an opportunity, multiple opportunities. That, As I said, that whole exchange that takes place there in chapter 22 between God and Balaam, where they're, where they're going back and forth, and God says this, and then Balaam says this. I believe that's God trying to, to lead Balaam to a realization of just who he is, not just a knowledge of who Yahweh is, not just an, uh, a head knowledge or a head understanding of, of these things, but to truly Live and dwell in the truth of God. The Magi are Persians. They're on the outside. But they get to worship at the feet of the Savior. They get to see him face to face. They get their story told in his scriptures. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about the thousands and millions of people who were faithful there in Israel, and yet we don't know their story. So to have your story included was what? It's, it's, it's a blessing. It's, it's an honor, to be sure. Unless you're wrong side of the story. These magi, they are recorded for us. They're reported to us. Every year when we set up our manger scenes, right? We got our angel, we got our sheep, and we got our magi someplace. Now, we've all talked about before how the magi weren't actually there with the same, at the same time as the shepherds. Okay, they're about two years later. But nonetheless, they're still considered part of that momentous experience of the incarnation. These outsiders who God has brought in. But as we look at this prophecy, as it, coming back to the prophecy itself, a star will come from Jacob. 
a scepter will arise from his will. He will smash the forehead of Moab. We see a truth here that his victory is both temporal and eternal. Now, I didn't say temporary, I said temporal. Okay, temporal means within time. Okay. Part of what Balaam is communicating here, the truth of what Balaam is communicating here, is that God has victories in real life. A lot of times as, as Christians, we, we focus on the eternal and how Christ is going to come and he's going to change everything, and that's thoroughly appropriate. That is what? That's our blessed hope, Scripture calls it. The resurrection and the experience of eternity with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But I think sometimes we get so wrapped up, enraptured in that, that we forget God's victories here and now. And one of the things we see in this prophecy is he's what? He's talking about Moab. He'll go on to talk about Edom. And at least a part of this prophecy is fulfilled in the life of David, who conquered Moab and Edom. But David's what? He's just a precursor to the one. And when Christ came, he came in the midst of one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. An empire that many thought unconquerable, unable to stand. And yet as the story of church history unfolds in those first couple of centuries, what do we see? We see the cross overcoming the soldiers might and the greatness that was the Roman Empire. Christ has victories in your life too. Right here, right now, there are things that you're facing, there are things that you're dealing with that God, that Christ can lead you through. They're what? They're the first fruits of eternity, Scripture tells us. We use the phrase the now and the not yet. The now part of what we get in our salvation is what? It's life, it's joy. You know what? Even, I don't believe I'm even remotely wrong, but even if I'm wrong about this whole salvation thing, my life is so much better than it would have been without the hope and the encouragement and the strength that I've found in my fellowship with believers and my fellowship with the God I serve. I've faced things in this life that pale in comparison to some of the things you all have faced. And yet God has seen me through. That's the Savior we serve. But you know what? His victory is also eternal. And the image here of Moab, and especially the Shethites, is meant to be what? It's meant to be a reflection of God's victory over evil ultimately. Just as we talked about a seed who would smash the serpent's head, Christ who came, he came and won an eternal victory with eternal ramifications. Eternal means what? 
never ending. And we can rejoice in that. We can find strength in that. We can find hope in that. We can find encouragement in that. We can find excitement in that. Christ is victorious. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and what? Is to come. He is eternal. But he gives us a choice of how we respond to that victory. He gives us the option of how we align ourselves in this life and in ultimately the life to come. Balaam, though he was given all of these opportunities, never ultimately acknowledged the reality of who God is. And in fact, as you read on into chapter 25 and following, you find that Balaam led Israel into a great apostasy, a great uh, abandoning of God's ways. After all the things God had shown him, after all the things God had given him, all the opportunities God had granted him to be part of the inside, to, to, to taste it, as the writer of Hebrews talks about, to taste the glory, the power of God. Balaam ultimately walked away from that opportunity, from that truth, from that reality. My question to you today is, where do you stand in relationship to God? Because if you're here, guess what? He's giving you some amazing opportunities that many people never got to hear his message, to fellowship with his people, to sing his praises, to hear of how he's moved in times past and in times present and will move in times future. He's opened the door to you to get that taste of what he's like and what life with him can be. But ultimately, the choice comes down to you. Will you Submit to him, surrender to him, walk with him, or will you walk away? And find yourself in the same place that Balaam ultimately finds himself accursed. This is the these passages here in Numbers are the only place you see Balaam mentioned in a good light. Wherever else he appears, whether it's the Psalms, the prophets, or the New Testament. He's always identified as the one who led in the great rebellion against God. Who are you going to be? As God speaks to you and calls you and draws you, how are you going to respond? Maybe you're hearing you, you are a believer. You, you've surrendered. You've given your life. And, and, and let me just assure you, let me express with, with confidence that if you've given your life to Christ, you are secure in Christ. You didn't give it to yourself. God gave it to you. Therefore, you can't take it away. But maybe you're not walking with the confidence, the clarity that you ought to. A servant of the victorious king. 
He calls you to, to stand with boldness, to realize you are on the winning team. Not as an expression of cockiness or arrogance, I'm the winner, you're the loser, but as an expression of confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can find contentment in this life when things are so bad because Christ, the victorious King, dwells within me. That's what he's calling us to live and walk in. How will we respond to him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, the invitation to move from being an outsider to being an insider. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who finds himself an outsider, that you would draw them to you and that they would respond in faith and experience the salvation you alone can offer. God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, myself as well, that you would help us to walk with the confidence and clarity that comes from being children of the victorious King. Help us, Lord, to, to share your message, communicate your message to a world that so desperately needs to know that there is hope. That above all the noise and confusion and struggles of this world, there is clarity and there is confidence and there is a future in you. There's other decisions here, Lord, that need to be made. We pray that you lay those on our hearts and that we're responsive to them, God. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.